What's up, guys? This podcast may end up saving your life. The stuff we're going to talk about today is about what happens in emergency situations and search and rescue, man. I mean, a lot of times we're pretty deep in the backcountry um, when we're on our dirt bikes, and you never know what's going to happen. I mean, we have a little bit of preparation. We've maybe got some water with us. We've got maybe a little bit of food. Do we have a way to start a fire? Do we have a way to communicate? These are things we're going to be talking about today. I'm going to bring on a special guest, Luke Bowman. He flies a helicopter for search and rescue here in Utah, and he's got uh, some interesting things to talk to us about and maybe helping us to figure out what is what we can do um, to help ourselves and give you a little bit of insight into what happens when he's going out there and doing search and rescue. Now, not everything he does is for dirt bikes. Obviously, there's a lot of different people that would need um, rescuing out here in Utah in the backcountry, but I think he's he's also a dirt biker and he's got some unique perspectives on this. So I would love to bring him in and just kind of get some of his insights. And so we're going to uh, do that right now. Well, hey, Luke, thanks for coming on. Can you hear me okay? Yep, I can hear you. Perfect, perfect. So this is Luke Bowman. Um, he, you've, you've, been working, you've been working for Search and Rescue here in Utah, did you say for 10 years now? 10 years, yep. 10 years. And what is your position there and what, and what do you do on a daily basis? So I'm the chief pilot for the Department of Public Safety, and we, we've got two helicopters. Primary mission is search and rescue and law enforcement support. Okay. And what, what's the time slip between search and rescue and the law enforcement with, with those missions? Yeah, so search and rescue really takes up a majority of our time. So probably about 85% of the calls that we get are for search and rescue. And then 10% law enforcement and 5% kind of miscellaneous other stuff. Okay. So like in a, let's say in a given week, you know, a work week is five, six days. I don't know how many days a week you're working. Um, how many calls do you go? How many of these search and rescue calls do you typically go out on in a week in, in the summer? Or, or is, it, is it higher in the summer than the winter? Or what, what does that look like? Yeah, definitely, definitely higher in the summer. Spring really kicks it off and gets us going. Um, but in the summer, we'll probably do um, probably do four or five a week. Wow! Oh, so like it, last week, for example, was just crazy, and we were having we were having three a day for for about four days in a row, and then um, we probably we had uh, eleven rescues just last week. Wow. That, that is crazy. One of the reasons why I was so interested in <clears throat> excuse me, having you come on is because I actually was involved in a helicopter rescue just in a small part um, a couple years ago up in Idaho. We were, we, were, we were kind of finishing up a four-day trip up near Stanley, Idaho, and uh, we were literally packing up to go. And we had seen some guys out on the trail and you know three guys and they looked and they looked like they were you know having a good time maybe maybe one of them was a little bit out of his element and then a couple hours later we see him when we're packing up at the truck there's one guy he comes in he's like hey my brother just broke his leg blew out his knee can you help get you know some help help us get someone in here to help him you know get to get out so we have to yeah. drive into town cuz we had no cell cell service right where we were so we drive into like Ketchum Idaho and we were trying to get a hold of like the police or the sheriff's office or search and rescue. And we ended up kind of being part of the coordinators to get a helicopter in and get this guy out. And then we ended up packing him out on the gurney and everything down the trail to a spot where the helicopter could land. So when you yeah. mentioned here um, that you were a dirt biker, you're interested in learning more about dirt biking and kind of getting going more with that. And then you said, hey, 
by the way, I'm also a helicopter pilot. <laughs> we do search and rescue. I'm like, this is perfect. I would love to talk to you. So thanks for coming on. So oh, you bet. I, and, and this is like, obviously for dirt bikers, this is worst case scenario type thing. Um, where yeah. you might have to have a helicopter rescue, but it happens. I just had, I had an email last week of a guy who he said that last summer, I can't remember exactly when it was, but he, um, had a, he had a helicopter rescue. He spent a night up on, in our mountains here in Utah, uh, in a spot that I know well, I've been, I've been going there for seven or eight years. He spent a night up there and then had to be helicoptered out the next morning because uh, one of the guys that he was with was kind of fading fast. Maybe there was some hypothermia or something going on there. But uh, right. yeah, so it's funny because no, everyone thinks like, oh, that's never going to happen to me. But then you are like perfect, you know, you're sitting there going, no, it happens all the time because I just <laughs> right. I had like 11 missions last week, you know? And so right. obviously not, not all of them are dirt bikers. There's a ton of different things. What do you think is if there's one you know, demographic of person that you're picking up, who do you think you're picking up more than others? Or is it a complete smattering of everyone like hikers and rock climbers and dirt bikers? And is there like a specific demographic that you're like, man, we're getting those guys all the time. Yeah. So hikers is is definitely number one, just because, um, you know, I think, I think hiking is very easy for a lot of people to do. Um, you know, people read on the internet, they go out, they get way in over their heads. And they're trying something that they read on the internet and they get out there and they get stuck and, and it's definitely number one. And maybe they're not as prepared as they should be because they're like, Hey, I can do this. I, I just sat on the couch for six months. I'm going to go out and try to, you know, hike this peak right. or whatever. Right. Yeah. So especially like along the Wasatch front, you know, Mount Olympus is really popular and stuff like that. People go and they don't realize, you know, the, what it takes and, None of them are prepared. You know, a lot of times no food, no water. And then night comes and now they're stuck up in the snow with no water and, you know, no, no clothes for the cold and gets bad pretty quick. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how search and rescue works in Utah as far as like, how do the calls come in and, and, uh, you know, what does that look like in the early, in the first minutes or the early hours of a, of like a backcountry search and rescue operation? Yeah, so initially the call comes in, you know, 911 call either from the lost or lost person themselves if they have service or from family members that are like, hey, this guy was supposed to be back, you know, at five o'clock. It's now midnight. He's not back. Um, so initially the call comes in to 911 and then that goes out to the sheriff's department. And the sheriff is responsible for search and rescue within their own county. So anytime you get a call, they figure out where it's at. And then they call the sheriff's office um, and they're responsible to decide, you know, what resources need to go out, things like that. So at DPS, we're just, uh, we're just supporting the sheriff's office. So and what does DPS sheriff, stand for? Uh, Department of Public Safety. Okay. Uh, okay. And you've got, you've got a couple so of helicopters there. Okay. Yep. So that's a state agency. And then we're just there to support the sheriffs. And so the sheriff might get, you know, 20 calls before he needs to call us. So really the true, the true search and rescue happens within the sheriff's department and they've got tons of teams on the ground. Um, you know, ropes teams, high angle rescue teams. A lot of them actually have a dirt bike squad that goes out and, uh, and looks on dirt bikes and, um, you know, ATVs, whatever they can to, to try to find the people. Um, if the people aren't, if we don't know for sure where they're at, then we go out and we start the search. 
and uh, you know we've been really successful for, with the helicopter uh, for that. And then um, a lot of times, though, especially lately, they'll they'll know where they're at, and we just go in to to do the actual rescue, and so we're able to kind of cut down our time on that because you know we're just so busy. So you know, like last week, we're stacking calls up. You know, we got two pending that need our help but we're like well we'll get there when we can and so then all the ground crews are out there doing the work and doing the initial stuff and then we come in and support where we can yeah so that uh, and i i guess the sheriff's offices maybe maybe you don't have a ton of insight into this but they must be sitting there with maps and you know topo maps and everything where they're trying to pinpoint locations if they know what the location is they're like hey there's no other option other than sending in a helicopter, you know, or maybe we can get a horse in here or can we not? Can, is there time? I don't know if, I don't know if horses are ever involved in these rescue operations or things, but, but, uh, they're probably yeah. sitting there trying to figure out what's the best asset to deploy. And at a certain point it's like, okay, we're going to have to call Luke and his team because helicopter is going to be the only way to ex- extricate these people. Right. And they, you know, they know their counties very well. And so they'll know like, Hey, all this area over here, we get, we get calls and we know the terrain and this is definitely going to be a helicopter rescue, you know, or there's places that are so remote, especially when you get out in the rural areas of Utah, they're so remote that it's going to take the sheriff's office three or four hours to get out there after they get the call out and get, you know, an hour or so to gather the gear and, and put the team in together, brief, all that stuff. And then three or four hours to drive to where they need to be and then hike in and, things like that so a lot of times they'll call us and just say hey you know we know they're in this area somewhere the family says they're in this canyon can you can you start looking yeah so we'll head out a lot of times we're the first ones on scene so how many how many different helicopters what what are the assets that are like in your department how many different pilots are there what what do these teams look like that you're that you're working with specifically yeah so right now we have two helicopters um, within the state and only two full-time pilots myself and one more and then two part-time pilots and between the four of us we cover 24 7 one of us is always on call and always ready to respond to the hangar um, to go on these calls and then um, we also have we fly with tactical flight officers we call them and they're highway patrol troopers that are specially trained for the rescue and for for the mission and so if we go and, you know, if we think that there's a possibility that we're going to have to hoist them out or, you know, different things like that, we'll fly with a pilot and two tactical flight officers or TFOs, and we'll go down and, and kind of go from there. So um, kind of a little background on the, on the state. You know, we've been flying helicopters since 1988, and they, they kind of started just with military surplus helicopters. And kind of went from there and and then you know back in 2002 we got we bought a couple of bigger more powerful helicopters they're called a stars from solid county so they had they had started their kind of own aviation division and flew for a couple of years and then wanted to get out of it just because of cost and things like that so we bought them from them and um were able to really expand the mission and uh um, then it wasn't until 2013 that we actually bought our own, our first new helicopter. 
And then uh, 2016, we introduced hoisting capabilities, which has really changed our game. So it's kind of the background. You have any questions on that? Yeah. So what with with hoisting, this is where you're probably not able to land, right? So you would need to be able to drop a cable down and hoist them up in some really rugged terrain. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So what it, um, you know, a lot of places, and especially backcountry and rock climbers stuff like that, there's just nowhere to land. It kind of like that story that you told. You know, you had to pack them out on a gurney for a little bit before the helicopter could land. Um, there's just you know, so much rugged terrain that you can't land a helicopter everywhere. But if the person's injured or things like that, then then we we hoist and we'll send a rescue specialist down the hoist and they'll get to them and then assess the situation, see what needs to be done to extract that that victim out. So tell me tell me this. If you can land, um does a lot of time do you kind of go and assess the person, or do you always have your team? That, do you stay with the helicopter? What what does that look like, or is it, is it different on every mission? On the mission that that I was part of, the the pilot, you know, pilot in command, he he sees where the person is, we, he, and then he goes and assesses the area. Found a couple of landing zones. He picked the landing zone, and then him and the two other officers. So there was three of them. They head up and they walk up there and they basically all pack. They helped us pack the guy out. So you had three, you know, three flight members. Um, and I don't know what their technical de- designations were. There was the pilot, and then it seemed like two flight nurses, or the is the term. So, yeah, is the term so that I'm using. Usually, those EMS, like the EMS helicopters, they'll fly with a nurse and a paramedic, and then the pilot. So none of our guys, none of our guys are medically trained. So our, our kind of focus is just stabilization and extract to the closest medical okay. uh, resources. And so, you know, every mission is quite a bit different and, and we'll utilize whatever, whatever we have to, to get the job done, get that person done. So a lot of times that, you know, the pilot is out there helping, doing whatever. Um, it's kind of unique. A lot of places don't do this, but because of our limited resources, um, we have a couple of guys that are, that are trained in multiple areas, you know, to be in different positions on the helicopter. So myself, for example, I can, I'm the pilot and then I can also jump over and be the hoist operator. If we have another pilot, but not a hoist operator available. And then I've also done, uh, I'm also trained in the rescue specialist spot. So, you know, we just kind of work together. Sometimes we're flying, you know, two pilots and a mechanic. Sometimes we're flying a pilot, two troopers, you know, it just kind of depends on, on the team that we can get together. You know, it's a little bit difficult because uh, all these troopers have their full-time assignments. And then just just ours is, you know, just collateral duty. So just extra stuff that they have to do. So as time has gone on, um, have you had, do you think you're seeing more rescues or less rescues as your career has gone on? Maybe can we talk a little bit about that and maybe why you think it's trending one way or the other? Yeah, you bet. So, um, so they started keeping good stats. I came, you know, 10 years ago, but in 2000 is when they started keeping pretty good stats on, on stuff. And from 2000 to 2015, it was pretty steady. Um, had roughly, you know, 65 rescues every year and they didn't have a hoist. And so it was just kind of, um, do what you can to rescue and you know like 
cart them down to an LZ and things like that. So it stayed pretty steady. Um, about at about sixty five a year. Since two thousand, well, really two thousand sixteen, it started to just just increase, and we're up probably, you know, sixty percent from those numbers. So, from two thousand seventeen to two thousand nineteen, we averaged about one hundred and thirty five rescues a year, and forty three of those being hoist rescues, and then. Um, so far this year, we're down. We're down. Our numbers are down compared to other years because of COVID and things like that. So we're we're roughly forty percent lower than where we usually are this type of year. Um, but we've already done you know sixty sixty rescues and seventeen hoists. So last couple of weeks, it's really started to to increase, and uh, we're going going quite a bit. So it seems like if I'm hearing you correctly, then COVID with everyone kind of staying indoors and everything, it it really was reducing the number of missions that you guys were flying. And then now in the last few weeks after at the weather has gotten so good and and the state has kind of loosened the belt, so to speak, we've gone from, I can't even remember what the colors are, but like a lower state of, you know, Hey, you got to stay home. And so now all these, all these missions and all these rescues are, are skyrocketing on you, right? Yeah, it's just like they open the floodgates. I mean, it's just it's just crazy. Um, the people that are out there, um, you know, everybody's everybody's going, and we're just we're just going crazy. <laughs> so, like last week, I was saying we had uh, multiple sixteen-hour days. Um, you know, that we're just going three, four missions back to back, and um, it's been it's been pretty crazy. Is that is that a fulfilling day? Is it a is it a fun day? I mean, do you get home going, I don't want to do that again, or do you have this feeling like that you're really helping people? What is that like as as a search and rescue guy like that? Is or the, do you dread those days? Do you like them, or is it a love hate? Um, you know, I for me and for everybody on the crew, we would definitely rather be out doing stuff and helping people. You know, the, the days that I dread are are the administrative days, you know, the meetings and the paperwork and stuff like that. I really I really enjoy, you know, getting out and and being out in the outdoors and helping people and feeling like I make a difference. Yeah. You know, like you know, you get out there and, and some people, you know, they just you have some incredible stories, you know, where where you're like, man, that that guy probably wouldn't have made it unless we got there. And so those are very fulfilling. What is it like when these people see you? Because some of the time they're in dire straits, you know, and they might be in a situation where they might feel like they might have died or they're going to die. And then all of a sudden you guys show up as like, you know, knights in shining armor. What is that what does that feel like when they look at you? Are they full of gratitude? I mean, what, what is that? Uh, can you kind of describe some of the, maybe, maybe, and maybe there's a whole range of it, but maybe kind of try to describe what that's like to be that night, somebody's knight in shining armor. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody that we, that we get is, is very full of gratitude. You know, a lot of times, a lot of times they've already been out there for 12 or 24 hours. You know, we had one, guy last week that we didn't get the call until he was missing for about 36 hours. Wow. And so then we found him. He had been out there with no supplies but a lighter for 48 hours. And so we find him and I mean, just the gratitude and the relief on his face that, you know, he's just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I made it out. And 
he had walked, you know, 10 miles from the trailhead in some random direction. So it wasn't even like, I mean, nobody was close. And so without a helicopter, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't even have known to look there, you know, really known or, or been able to look there. They're limited ground resources. Um, you know, you can't cover that kind of country that quick. And people don't realize how, how big and vast it gets really fast. And so, you know, him being 10 miles out in the canyon that nobody was even looking, he wouldn't have been found. And so just the relief on his face, like, oh, I can't believe that, that I've been found, you know? Yeah. Oh, that must be, it must be fulfilling. I think there are certain jobs that maybe have more fulfillment than others. And I guess, I guess every job is fulfilling in certain ways, but, um, it just seems kind of, I, I have this romantic feeling when I think about that. Like if I was out, you know, flying and doing search and rescue, and I'm sure there's, there's obviously drags about your job and things that are like, Oh, this is, this part sucks, but it would be cool to be able to be that for somebody, you know, on a daily basis and be like, Hey, we're helping you. So one question, yeah, one question, that po- cool. yeah, one question that popped up in my mind while we were talking about this and maybe we'll get into this later, but I wrote it down cause I just wanted to get it out of the way. Um, who pays for these rescues? So you're, you know, you're going out on a mission, you know, a couple times a, a day sometimes. If I'm the guy who gets lost, or who, who pays? And how do we, yeah, how do we so, figure out who pays? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, there's, a, there's kind of a wide range of answers, I guess. So sometimes if we're not available or a quicker asset is like an EMS helicopter, then they'll go out and assist with the search. And if they pick up a patient or if the person's injured and they pick up a patient, they obviously have their own revenue stream, you know, ways to charge the patient and all that kind of stuff. If we go out, um, we're, like I said, we're just there to... And that, that EMS would be like life, what people refer to yeah, as life flight. Yeah, like life flight or AirMed, you know, one of those kind of programs. Yeah, that was, that was the one that I... I'm pretty sure that was the one that I got involved with because I think it was a helicopter from a... Um, a hospital, one in Boise, of the a Boise yeah. hospital or something like that. So that would have been an EMS rescue, I guess. Yeah. So they, so that person would have been charged um, for the EMS, for the helicopter transport. Um, so our program, we are funded, we are funded every year through the state legislature. And so when we, when we get the call and we go to support these counties, there's no charge to the county or to the victim. Um, and so our service is, you know, 100% covered by funds from the state legislature. And so um, the sheriff, on the other hand, they they actually have kind of written into state law is they have the ability to bill um, the victim. And so, it, you know, if they use a lot of resources and stuff like that and they, you know, they're going way over budget, they can bill the victim if they want. Now, I don't know of any sheriff in the last, you know, 10, five, 10 years that has built the victim. They mostly, they mostly, it's just volunteers. They go out there, they use their resources, they use their training, and they perform the rescue, and very seldom do they build. Interesting, because they've already got that kind of built into their budget. They've got a search and rescue budget, probably. Where... Yeah, so they've got search and rescue, and then there's also a state fund that these counties can tap into um, that they, hey, you know, we we were anticipating 
50 rescues and these were our, this was our budget, but we had a hundred and we went way over and they can get reimbursed for a lot of those. And so through the state, and there's also federal grants and things like that. So it, um, you know, 90% of the time there's nothing, there's nothing that happens as far as billing to the person that's lost. So, but yeah, but if you, if you do get picked up by a hospital, so that, that's a kind of an interesting thing is if you're out there, you know, you, you roll the dice, you, cause I'm, I'm out there with like a Garmin inReach. We'll get into that later. And if I call SOS, you know, if you come get me, I'm maybe not going to be, I'm probably not going to be billed. But if, uh, you know, one of these hospital get, hospitals get the call and they send, then it's definitely going to, I'm, I'm going to get the bill. So how, who makes that decision? So that decision is made by the sheriff and they're, they're all, they're all pretty good about that. Um, so if it's a known injury, if they're going out and they're like, Hey, like your SOS on your injury, if, if you just push that and it's just kind of unknown, you know, um, then they won't call an EMS helicopter. They'll call us, they'll call their ground resources, you know, all that stuff. And that's kind of stage one. And then if we get there and it's known injuries and, you know, definitely the person has a broken pelvis or needs to be flown because of their injuries, then they call the EMS helicopter. So, you know, that's kind of state, that's kind of step two is like, Hey, we got to We got to get some kind of medical professional, you know, on scene or a quicker transport than, than a bumpy road in the back of an ambulance. And so that person is injured. They already need to go to the hospital. They're already, you know, that and then the helicopter is just the best option to get them there. Um, so, but primarily, primarily it'll be it'll be us or ground resources first, and then helicopter second or EMS helicopter second. Cool. So let's talk about uh, what makes a successful mission, kind of briefly here with with these missions that you're going out on. Um, kind of what are the purposes and and how do you guys view yourself and how do you grade yourself on if it's successful or not? Yeah. So really, our assets are, are just a tool to, to make things better, um, make things easier and safer, you know, stuff like that. Kind of our, our mission statement is if we can do anything to reduce exposure to risk, either to the person that, you know, the teams on the ground or the victim on the ground, then that's where we, that's where we come into play. So a lot of times we don't, we don't transport the victim or do anything directly with the victim, but we're just there to, to support the ground teams and we'll move the ground teams around, you know, shuttle them to places, shuttle their gear, you know, things like that. Cause if you get some of these slot canyons and stuff, like even our hoist, we can't, we can't go down into those. And so a lot of times you'll just have to transport people in They can set up rope teams, go down, raise the person up and then, and then maybe they'll fly, maybe they won't. And so, you know, kind of our, we gauge our success just on if we're some kind of benefit, to reduce that exposure to risk. Um, you know, and the big thing that we do or kind of we focus on is we are a force multiplier. And so you go to some of these rural counties that have very limited resources of volunteers that may or may not be able to respond, stuff like that. So you have, you know, 10 guys that are starting to look in this huge area and we can, we can cover that area quite a bit quicker. So, Force multiplier, I like that. What uh, what about uh, the people? Because these missions probably don't always end in success. 
obviously you want to have, you want to be able to find the people, find them alive and, and help them. Um, what about the times where you can't find them or you don't find them in time? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, accidents happen and, and you get the call and it's just like, Hey, this person's missing and you go out there and, you know, for whatever reason, they've, uh, they've died, you know, from either their injuries or exposure or things like that. And so we'll still, we'll still recover that person and get them, you know, to command post and, and stuff like that to kind of bring closure to the family. So a lot of times, you know, you'll, you'll see resources being used and the question gets asked all the time, like, Hey, it's already been three days. We know that person's not alive. Why are we spending so much money and resources to look for that person? But I think for the families, you know, at that point, our job is really just to bring closure to them. You know, nobody wants the unknown. And so if you have, you know, if your family member just disappears and you never see them again, that's a lot harder than, you know, you're always wondering what happened and things like that. But if we can bring closure and, you know, bring the body back and really like let the family grieve and have closure and say, look, we know this is what happened. He fell off of this cliff or whatever it is. Then I think that's a lot easier for them to deal with. And so we'll, we'll still treat that mission just as important as any other mission because of that. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, just a couple of weeks ago here, there was a couple teenage girls that were just swimming in a lake near me and they, a storm pulled up and just came in really quickly and pushed them out into the water. At least that's what we assume. And they were doing search and rescue. I think they had aircraft. I think they had boats and all types of things and dogs. And it took them many, many days to be able to find those girls. And obviously after the first about, you know, 12 hours, the possibility of them become, uh, you know, being found alive is pretty low, but you talk about bringing that, the closure to the family and it's a real thing. So yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we were on that call. Um, we got the call initially that night and we went out there and we located out in the middle of the lake, we located their little flotation device that they had. You don't want to be little, just like pool toys, basically. Yeah. They, they were floating on and, you know, we were able to, to find that and then kind of gave them an area, you know, you can't believe, you wouldn't believe the resources that were put into that after that, you know, you have scuba dive teams, you have, like I said, aircraft, we flew, you know, three or four times and, you know, it's just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Super sad. But I think, you know, and, and that's the thing, some of these, some of these don't end up in successful, I mean, successful like rescues, but, but you're, what you're saying, Hey, look, our mission is to, is to support teams on the ground to either recover the person or to recover their body and we're going to we're going to continue to work hard until we until we achieve those objectives whether or not the person is found alive or, or not we're we're going to recover exactly. something so exactly. so with the hoisting um it seems like it seems like this is something that would have really and you mentioned it when you got the ability to start doing hoist recoveries and hoist extractions that uh that's probably another huge force multiplier there where you're able to you know deploy a a, a cable down and and get someone um that's probably a big, been a big, a big factor in your rescues, right? Yeah. So it's been, it's been a huge, um, help, you know, it's really, it's really 
made us more efficient. So I wouldn't say that we're getting more calls because of the hoist, but we're able to more efficiently help because of the hoist. So if you have a person that's in a really precarious spot, you know, before we had the hoist, we'd have to either just haul ground teams in, you know, with all their gear so they can, they can rappel down and do a rescue, lower them down. And that mission would take, you know, eight to 10 hours of them trying to re- trying to help that person where now we can go in and get that done in 20, 30 minutes. We just go in and say, Oh yeah, they're right here on this cliff. And we can go down and, and grab them and go from there. Um, you know, obviously there's a, there's a certain level of risk involved with hoisting that, that you don't have if you're just going to go and do a flat pitch landing. And so, you know, we, we always look for other options, but, in a lot of cases, especially in the rugged terrain of Utah, there's just no other option. So, so then we have to do the hoist. If you can't land, you gotta you gotta hoist them out. Yeah, no, I can totally see that. So let's let's kind of shift gears just a little bit because most of the people listening to this podcast are going to be dirt bikers, um, right. and I would hope that they're that they're a little bit more prepared. I would hope that I'm a little bit more prepared than just the average Joe schmo. But there's always things that I can do to become better prepared. And so let's talk a little bit about that, what people can do to, to help themselves um, to either avoid injury or, or just to, you know, to avoid maybe the catastrophic thing of actually succumbing to the elements or, or whatever. So can we talk a little bit about the things that you've noticed over the last 10 years as you've been doing this here in Utah? What are some of the things we can do as a user group specifically the dirt bike group. Um, and, and maybe a lot of these things are going to be just the same things that you would do if you were a hiker or rock climber or whatever, but what can we do, um, to help ourselves? Yeah. So, um, first of all, you know, it is, you kind of mentioned it, but you know, dirt bikers or snowmobilers, people that kind of have an area of expertise are a lot more prepared than just your average hiker. And so, you know, the, these guys have done their research. They've gone out. They, they are better off usually than, than someone that's just out there. So when we get a snowmobile call, you know, we'll get those. And usually those are at night and things like that. But, but you know, Hey, this guy, this guy has, is probably prepared with food and water and a way to make a fire and, and warm clothes for the night and things like that. And so if it takes a couple hours to find them, then, you'll have a better outcome than just say a hiker that went off and got caught, you know, unprepared in spandex. And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that happens a lot. So, um, you know, there's a lot of people that go out, they have no idea what they're doing and they, and they just get in way over their head and, you know, either they, they're trying to climb up a peak and it gets rocky and they get clipped out and, you know, they're like, Holy cow, how did I end up here? I can't go up. I can't go down. You know, they're just in way over their heads. Most of the time with dirt bikers, you know, we do, we have done a fair share of rescues with dirt bikers and ATVs and stuff like that, but that's, that's usually something more catastrophic has happened, right? You've, you've got someone that's out there, they know what they're doing and they've done everything right and they've just had an accident and that, that happens, um, but less, less often than people just being unprepared and getting in over their heads. So um, a couple of things that I put down just to just kind of prepare um, for for when you're going out is number one, do your research. Just kind of know where you're going, 
you know, what the terrain's like, what it's like, and then let people know where you're going. Um, tell them, you know, show them the map. If you have a map that, that you know, highlights your trail or whatever, then you could give that to your spouse or your friends and say, hey, this is where I'm going. This is how much time I, I think it's going to take. Um, you know, this is this is what's going on. So good communication is really important when you're talking about that. Um, we've been on some calls where you show up and you find a guy and you go down there and they're like, no, I'm exactly on schedule. I'm doing everything I thought. You know, I told my wife I'd be out on Sunday and, you know, it's a week later or something and she just misinterpreted which Sunday or something like that. So let, good let, communication. Let's hope that we're, when we say Sunday, <laughs> she knows it's the Sunday next. Wow. That would be a big, that'd be a big yeah. miscommunication. You got a week off. Yeah, so, oh my gosh. So we've had, we've had that happen a couple of times, you know, people go on river trips or something and they're like, yeah, so you know, it's Saturday when they're talking to their wife and they're like, yes, I'll be back Sunday. So in her mind, she's thinking the next day, but really it's a week later. Wow. And so we'll get, we'll get down there and we'll land. We're like, Hey, are you so-and-so? Yeah. What's going on? Oh, your wife's worried about you. Oh, I told her I'd be out next week. You know? So oh my gosh. So, you know, and communication is really important. And then, you know, just, just be prepared, get prepared for, for what you're going to do. Um, and, you know, preparation, it's, it's kind of a tricky thing because a lot of people go out and be like, oh, you know, I hear that, that they mentioned get a Garmin inReach. So they'll go out and they'll get, get a Garmin inReach and then never look at it, never know how to use it. And then they'll get out there and they'll be like, oh, wait, now what do I do? Right. So no matter what you're getting in your preparation, you need to be comfortable with that, with that equipment or that gear, you know, things like that. So. Um, kind of go back to my team, we have, you know, a certain level of, of survival gear on our, on our rescue vests when we go out on rescues, but I make, I make my guys practice on that. You know, we train, we train every other week and we'll go out there and we'll hoist and I'll hoist them into a spot and then say, okay, nobody can come back. You know, how are you going to survive and make them go through the process of, starting a fire, starting a fire, getting shelter, you know, things like that, just so that they can practice. So they're comfortable with that. You know, I've heard you talk about that, like with changing tires, right? You want to practice and you want to be good at changing a tire. And the first time that you change a tire shouldn't be in the backcountry. Same thing with any other gear is first time that you have to use it shouldn't be when you're in trouble. You should be able to, you know, be confident, be comfortable with that stuff. And then, and then go from there. I, I love that because, like, even with say, if you got a GPS communicator, I I have one. I've I've got a Garmin Inreach. We'll talk about that maybe in just a little bit. But I use it every single time I go out, and I'll send tracking points to my wife. And so I'm I'm I know exactly how to do that because I will send her my position when I start, and then couple two three times maybe four times during the trip, depending on how long this ride is, other guys are getting out, you know, their food or whatever, or something like that. Or maybe they're just kind of sitting there on the bike. If we all sit there, we've been riding for a couple hours. We all sit there. What I do, I take my pack off. I pull out my inReach and I send her a little um, just note. And I just say, just checking in. Everything's okay. That's geotagged. So she knows my exact location at that time. That way, if something happens to me, We've already got it narrowed down. 
he was here two hours ago or he was here five hours ago. We knew exactly where he was because they said checking in just okay. And so it's these little things where it's like, if I get knocked out, this might be the thing that saves me that two hours ago I sent a tracking location, you know, or four hours ago I sent a tracking location to her. So when people are just sitting there shooting the breeze and this happens every time I go riding, you'll see me get my pack, pull it out and boom, just checking in. Everything's okay. Yeah. And that's huge to, you know, to have that starting point where you can say, look, this is the last known. We know he was here at this time. And then you go from there, you know, so often we get these calls and it's like, well, they said this Canyon. And so then you're spending, you know, valuable time just looking for their vehicle to see where they started from, what trailhead they're actually using and, you know, stuff like that. And so, so, you know, if you have a starting point, that's going to increase the chance for success a lot. You know, every, they talk about, you know, in, in EMS, especially they talk about that golden hour. And basically what the theory is, is just the quicker that that person can be found, the more likely you'll have a successful outcome. And so if you're, if you're marking that location and now we have a starting point, we're going to find you very quick as opposed to, well, their trucks are down here. They could have gone, you know, 360 degrees in any direction. We have no idea where to start or where to, what to even do at that point, you know? Yeah. So if you're heading into the backcountry, whether you're a dirt biker, hiker, all this stuff, but I want to specifically focus on dirt bikers, what are the things that you uh, believe that, you know, your experience has taught you? What should you have with you? Yeah. So, you know, I kind of, I kind of look at it a little bit different. There's a lot of people that are just like, well, I'm just going for a two hour ride. I don't need to, I don't need to be that prepared. I can just, you know, just head out. And there's a lot of people, maybe not so much the dirt bikers or the snowmobilers, you know, people that, that kind of know what, what the potential is, but there's people that, that head out that really have no idea how to be prepared. So my, my thing is you look at it and no matter how long you're going to be going, then you need to have a few essentials. And, you know, just like, just like when you're, when you're looking at, okay, what do I need to, to head out on this desert trail on my dirt bike? you know, okay, I might need these tools and you have a couple of essential tools to fix your bike. You should also have a couple of essential tools for yourself. And uh, number one is water, right? We can't take enough water. And I've heard you mention a couple of times a year, always filling your three liter, three liter water, no matter how long you're going to go. And a lot of times you come back with that extra water. Well, that's, you know, no harm, no foul. But if you get stuck in the desert, that three little, that three liters of water is going to go pretty quick. And so, you know, somebody's like, oh, well, I have this 16-ounce water bottle. That's not going to be enough. You know, that might be enough to, to help you for a couple-hour ride. But if you get stuck for 6, 12 hours overnight, something like that, that's not going to be enough water. Um, and I kind of put down in my notes, you know, maybe consider taking a life straw. A lot of places, um, you know, there's not water available. But if you're in the mountains, things like that, and you get out there, and a life straw weighs nothing. It's like 16 ounces or something. And it'll allow you to get water from basically any source. So as long as you have a water source, you can get purified water. Um, yeah. yeah and then, I, I, just, I just ordered some of those because I saw it was kind of a blind spot. We have some for my daughter in this little emergency kit because um, uh-huh. that was what we gave her for Christmas. She wanted to do some have some emergency preparedness stuff and some backcountry camping stuff or whatever. So she got a couple of life straws and I realized 
I don't have it in my pack. And it's so hard as a dirt biker because you're carrying you're carrying a lot of stuff and you don't and like you said, you can never carry enough water. Um so I'm like, I just ordered a couple more on Amazon. They're like twenty bucks. Um and they're they're coming and I'm gonna stuff that in my pack. It's very difficult. Yeah. It's very difficult to know what to bring and because there's I mean the the list is endless. I, I could we could continue to talk about all the things that you should bring and it's very difficult as a dirt biker because you're going in the back country and you're you're expending so much energy most of the time, uh, and you right. and my pack already weighs fifteen pounds, or, or I I can't even know I don't even know because I haven't weighed it for a while. But I hand it to my wife, and she's like, "Are you freaking kidding me? You're carrying this yeah. much weight, and you're wrestling a two hundred fifty pound machine for six hours." I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, this is how much I'm carrying." So I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna stuff the life straw in there as soon as it gets here today or tomorrow. And carry that as well. It doesn't weigh a lot, but I mean, it's it's extra bulk that's on my back, and I don't know. There's so life straw. That's a good one. The water. That's a good one. What what else? Yeah. So I, unfortunately, you know, the water is the first thing that people are going to cut out, right? Because they're like, oh man, my pack's already as heavy, and now I add three liters of water. And it's really heavy. A lot. And so then, and so then they start reducing water because that's that's the heaviest thing on the list. I mean, this list of stuff I've gotten I've gotten to my pack that's that's less than ten pounds before you add any water. And so if you could, you know, if you could take this like, you know, seven or eight pounds and then you have a life straw and you know, you're going to be an area where there's a water source, then, you know, that's different than, you know, heading out to the desert. Obviously you go out to the desert, you have no idea if there's going to be water or not. And so you're going to have to carry that water. But, um, you know, water is number one. You can survive, you can survive a long time without food, but without water, it gets pretty rough, pretty quick. Um, so food would be the next thing on the list. And I, you know, I don't mean like, like a ton of food, but just kind of some, some protein bars or, you know, something to kind of take the edge off. And if you eat a protein bar that can sustain you for quite a while, um, like I said, you can survive a long time without food, but just something to take the edge off. And so if you're out there for 12 hours and by hour eight, you're starting to get really hungry that's going to start to affect your decision-making because now you're just focused on that food and you're not going to make good decisions. And so the key is to, to be prepared so that you can make good decisions. So if you have something just little to take the edge off and, you know, even just feel like, okay, I ate something, I'm good. And then, and then go from there. Um, next thing on the list would wait, be, wait, hold, on, before, of, be, hold on before oh, yeah. we, before we move on to the next thing, cause you brought, I have a question in my mind. So this, this, this idea of making a bad decision. Can you give us an example of um, a poor decision that you would make because you're hungry in, in a you know one of these backcountry life or death situations? Yeah, so you know, key to whenever something happens, let's say you get hurt or lost, you know, the key I would say like don't even try to make any any decisions for for at least five ten minutes. Give yourself some time to. to slow down, step back, try to get, you know, an outside look at the situation and then start making your decision. And that way you're not, you're not walking, you know, frantically 10 miles in the opposite direction. You can, you can slow down and you can start to think and, you know, after five minutes or something, you can say, wait, I remember this landmark or I I know that there's water or, you know, a cave I can, I can get shelter from or, Whatever it is, you, your mind will start to bring back some of those things, and you can make those decisions based on reason instead of just based on emotion. 
So the first five, 10 minutes, it's going to be, you know, a frantic emotional time. And you want to, you want to avoid that and avoid any rash decisions. Um, you know, a lot of times people aren't, people don't think that they're making their decisions based on food. They're not like, Oh, I'm going to go here because I know I can, I can find food, but it's just one more thing that distracts them from, from making good, you know, logical decisions is they're like, Oh man, I'm so starving. So if you can, if you can have a little bit of food and water and say, Hey, I'm okay. Um, I can be here for a couple hours and nothing's going to go wrong because I have, I have what I need. And so um, the biggest, the biggest one that we're asking about what decisions they might make is, is heading off to the wrong area or um, abandoning some of their resources. You know, a lot of times people will, people will be going and they have everything in their pack to sustain their, to sustain themselves overnight. And then they'll be going. And for some reason, whatever illogical thinking they have, they'll leave, they'll, they'll leave their pack because it's too heavy. So they're like, Oh, I'm going to leave this here. And I'm just going to head over and look over here. And they think they're coming back to their pack and then they never come back. And so, wow. you know, it's just, it's just weird decisions like that, that, that makes it very hard for the rescuers because now you're trying to, you're trying to look and we always play the what if game, you know, like, okay, what is this person doing? What, if I was in this situation, what would I do? And so you're trying to, you're trying to logically think through that. And then you find someone in a place that you're like, this makes no sense. And a lot of times it's just, because of those decisions and you know especially like if you get hypothermic you know like we'll find people in the middle of the winter that have taken off all their clothes and left all their supplies and gone somewhere because you know that that hypothermia starts to mess with their brain and they start to start to feel warm and so then they'll take off layers of clothes well they're really not warm it's just the hypothermia that's making them think that so you know it's just it's just hard to hard to make good decisions when you're in emotional stressful situations and so you want to you want to set yourself up to make those decisions that's interesting thank you for clarifying that because i was sitting there going well you can live for 10 days without food so why is food like number 2 on your list but you have because you want to be able to make you know sound decisions and if you have a little bit of food in your stomach then you can take some of the emotion out of it and you might be able to make better decisions thank you for clarifying that yeah, you bet. Uh, so the next thing on my list would be just some sort of simple shelter, you know, and this doesn't have to be anything big or heavy, but just like a, a space blanket or a little, I carry a baby sack that, you know, weighs, weighs a pound, I think. And, you know, that way I can, I can stay out of the elements. It's waterproof in case it's pouring rain, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, anything that can kind of protect you from the elements. So if you start getting cold, you can have a space blanket to reflect heat, either from a fire that you build or off the rocks or, you know, whatever it is, your own body heat. So just something simple to to get out of the elements, whether that's, you know, rain, cold, sun, all that kind of stuff. And a a space blanket, something like that is a, is really good for any of that. Did Um, you say bivy sack? Is that what you said? Bivy. Yeah. B-I-V-Y. Okay. And so it's like a, it's basically like a sleeping bag, but it was no insulation. So it's just a, it's just, it's a mummy bag. You get down there, it's 100% waterproof and, you know, get you off of the, off of the elements a little bit and just kind of protects you and then kind of reflects your body heat. 
Um, so they have a wide range of those, but those are really good. Okay. I'm looking that up right now. Keep going. And then um, the next thing on the list is a satellite communicator or location device, you know, some kind of GPS. And there's a lot of products out there. So you've mentioned the Garmin InReach. Um, there's Spot Tracker. There's personal locator beacons that you can buy. And some of these, you know, are, are a little bit expensive. Um, you can, you know, you can spend up to five, 600 bucks. You don't need to spend that much. But, you know, that thing is going to save your life. When we have, when we get a call that's like, hey, we have, we have somebody that is at this location and they give us a GPS coordinate and say they've activated their SOS, you know, something that's, that mission is 100% successful, right? We can fly right to the spot. We can assess the situation. We get that person out. And there's, there's no question that that mission is going to be successful because of that device. And so we probably get, um, upwards to 10 a year. Um, so less than 10% of our of our calls, but we'll get them that that are 100% successful because of this device that they have. And it's just like I said, just to have that starting point, a, a position, a known place to go. You know, people don't realize how vast it is out there. Once you get out there, you know how long it could take to search that area. And even if you say a two mile radius from the truck is still a huge area. So now you put in dirt bikes and stuff where you can cover a lot of country and you're like, man, they might be 30 miles out there. So now draw a 30, 30 mile radius from the truck. And that's, that's becoming more, you know, more and more impossible, less likely that we're going to find that person. But if you have a starting point, that'll make all the difference in the world. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that idea. So if there was one if there was one of these one of these devices that you think gives the advantages over the others what uh which one would you say let's take let's just forget about the cost for right now what's the best emergency you know locator device that you found so i think the garmin inreach is is pretty much unbeatable just because of the fact that you can use that for navigation for yourself you know you don't need to have a, a separate gps system you can you can look at this and you can navigate off of it. You can communicate with people. Um, a lot of times you go out there and, you know, it might depend on your, on your comfort level for being alone out in the woods. I don't have a problem with that. So if I, if something came up and, and we got somewhere and I was like, look, I have everything I need to spend the night and I'm, I'm super exhausted and I'm just going to hurt myself if I try to, if I try to push it to get out then I can just send a message to my wife and just say, Hey, this is the situation. This trail took us, you know, six hours longer than we thought. And I'm just going to stop right here to rest and, and, you know, spend the night right here because, because I don't want to try to push it and hurt myself. And so, you know, you need to kind of be ready for that. Sometimes things take longer. If you have that in reach that you can send a message out, it's huge. Like with the spot tracker, they're a great system, but a lot of times you can't send a message. The only ones you can send is kind of a predetermined text that, you know, like, hey, I'm okay, this is where we're at, or an SOS. Um, personal locator beacon, for whatever reason, they're the most expensive, but there's there's not an ongoing service that you have to pay for with those. And so, um, but they'll, you know, they'll, they'll send your position out, but that's it. So they can 
all you can send is an SOS, and it's a good system, but you can't send anything else. So you can't send that message that says, hey, this is what happened. We, we got a flat tire to the slogger than expected. We're going to spend the night right here. It's, it's just either SOS or nothing. And so to communicate back with, with people back at the truck or back at home, you know, that's impossible. So I would say, I would say the government reach is really the best system that I found just for, just for the, the use and everything that you can do with it. Yeah, I that was the reason why I got it was just the two way communication. You know, you could you can get text messages over satellite, and yeah, the interface on the actual device itself is a little bit clunky. It feels like you're trying to send text messages on a Nokia phone from 2002 or whatever. But right. but they can Bluetooth to your phone if you've got your cell phone with you and you still have a uh, have a charge. You can you can connect your phone to it and then you can type it in you know a lot faster and interesting thing was the time that i did an sos call we were actually on a little like a little graham jarvis ride down in moab utah and we had a guy that kind of did something he tried to do something that graham did and it didn't work out so well for him and he collapsed a lung (laughs) and he like punctured his uh, spleen or kidney or something he was he was in a bad way right there he broke a couple of things you know the lung all this stuff and uh, I just jumped on my inReach. I did, and I, you know, I'd never done the SOS call before, but I did the SOS, and you know, because I'm paying for this service where I get this many things, and, and I'm I'm paying like twenty five bucks a month for the plan that right. I'm on to be able to have the the coverage that I have, and uh, so we do the SOS call, and they are asking questions like, is it you? Who's the person? What's the situation? And we were able to communicate all of these things. I'm like, he's dirt biking. He did this. He's having a hard time breathing. Here's where we are. You know, and they had, a, they had a number of questions back for me that I never would have been able to answer. I, you know, and they're like, is it life-threatening? Is he bleeding? Does he need a tourniquet? Like there were all these types of little communications coming back to me and they're okay, we're sending, based on your location, we're sending the sheriff. And it, it was the sheriff of that county that, or you know, at least one of the deputies that came out. They were there, and we we kind of got lucky because we were c- kind of right near one of the highways. I didn't even know uh-huh. that we were close to the highway. You know, we were just on this ride out at kind of doing Pritchett Canyon or whatever for the, some of the people that know where that is. And I didn't, I hadn't been there before, so I didn't know how close to the the highway we were. But they were able to bring a truck you know, pretty dang close to us. And within, I, I can't remember now, but it was inside of an hour. In fact, my gut feeling tells me it was more like 25 minutes or 30 minutes. And that's the best case scenario because we didn't even have to have a helicopter, but it was, it was because we were able to do, you know, some two-way communication for them to figure out at least a little bit of the information of what's going on, who it is, what his problem is, and if it's life-threatening, which we didn't really think it was life-threatening, but it was like, we're going to need some help. Because we had like 20 guys there, but right. we were like, we need an ambulance, or, or we need a way to, to, to export or extricate this guy, and we're all on dirt bikes, and now he can't ride a dirt bike anymore, you know? <laughs> right. So he's going to have to, right. and, the, we just, and there was a 4 by 4 truck that came and got him, and then took him out, because he couldn't ride his bike anymore with the lung and all that stuff, so... That was my, and I hadn't even had the inReach for, I don't know, I can't remember. It was less than a year, and here I am using the SOS for someone else. So even if you you might have the, you know, the this SOS communicator, the Garmin inReach, it might not be for you. 
it certainly saved right. that guy. And if I would have had it a year earlier in my situation up in Idaho, I would have saved that gentleman at least four hours of agony on, on the trail if I would have had that in reach at that time. We could have just buzzed right in there to him and then did the SOS call and they would have just sent that most likely sent the chopper because once they figured out exactly where it was that they sent the chopper anyway, they just scrambled it because they knew the general right. area. They knew it was going to be helicopter extraction. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, you know, time is critical in a lot of situations, you know, 90% of the time, time isn't that critical. So if somebody's going to survive the first 30 minutes to an hour, they're probably going to survive quite a bit longer. You know, it's like they don't have some injury that's going to, that's going to kill them, you know, right away. But that communication is key to be able to to be able to have that time. You know, if you just have one of these other systems that all you can do is send out an SOS, now nobody knows what resources to send, right? So, right. you know, it's, it's almost impossible. So before I before I had any of these kind of devices, I actually went on a, a kind of a dual sport trip with my dad and some friends down in Mexico, and I broke my arm clear out in the middle of nowhere. And I, I had no way to communicate anything to anybody. And so my dad is a chiropractor. He splints my arm. But now I'm out there to ride a dirt bike. Oh. I can barely squeeze the clutch. You know, I'm trying to ride this bike. And I had to ride it for six miles over a bumpy road till we came to a little village where we could have somebody haul us to uh, the next hospital in a truck. You know, and so that was a... That was like an 18-hour thing. Oh, wow. You know, and so and so it does happen no matter how prepared you are or what, what you think is going gonna, is gonna to save you is, is completely different. That ability to be able to communicate with, with other resources, you know, people at home or back at the truck, you know, things like that. Even if you had somebody that was staying at truck or base camp, like a lot of times we'll go and, and set up camp and the family will stay there camping and, and, you know, me and my son will go out for a ride. Well, if I have a way to communicate with my wife back at the truck is is huge. You know, I could say, hey, we got a flat tire. It's going to be this. Don't plan on us for the, the two o'clock hike or whatever that is, you know. So, so I can't stress enough how important something like that would be. Cool. So what about what's next? Are we down to fire starting stuff? Yeah. So the next thing I would have is a couple ways to start a fire. Um, and, you know, matches on a lighter and then some kind of fire starter. So it's a lot easier to start a fire. Luckily, like if you're with your dirt bike, you know, you've got access to gas and, and things like that. So you're probably set up better than, than just a hiker that maybe doesn't have anything, but some kind of little fire starter that, you know, they make some good ones out there. There's a wet fire it's called that weighs nothing and you can light on fire and throw it in a puddle and it will still sit there and be on fire. And so it'll burn for a couple of minutes until you can get more stuff on it and start a bigger fire. And, you know, they wait nothing and it, that'll save your life. If you can, you know, have a fire to knock off the, the cold, you can spend the night through some really cold nights if you have some way to make a fire. Um, and that kind of goes in with, uh, with the next one, a light, some kind of light source. So if you, if you can make a light or a fire, then the chances of you being found, especially at night, are, are increased, you know, probably 60-70%. Because, you know, in the helicopter, we have a lot of tools to find people. And we have what's called a, a forward-looking infrared camera. 
that will kind of detect heat and things like that. Well, that's like searching through a camera lens and, you know, it's really hard to, to find somebody in a vast area. But the pilot is flying with night vision goggles. And so any light source that's out there, then they can pick that up from, from a long ways away. You know, a fire, you can see 20 miles away. And so if you, if you could start a fire at night and then they start looking for you, then they're going to be able to find you. So that guy that I mentioned earlier that was 10 miles away from his truck, he had a lighter in his pocket. So he started a fire once it got dark. We kind of got a little bit higher to look for a fire or anything. And we found him and we saw him from, you know, four miles away and we're able to go over there and pick him up because, because of that fire. So not only will a fire make you, make you warmer, you know, increase your survivability, but it's also a good, good way to be found. I love that. So I, in fact, I have already placed two orders on Amazon while we've been talking because I'm thinking about some blind spots. I do have two ways to start fires in my riding packs. I've always got a lighter with me in every one of my riding packs. I feel like my one of my kids asked me, they're like, Dad, it's almost like you're a smoker because you've, you've got lighters everywhere. I've got lighters in the car. I've got lighters in my riding packs. I've got lighters in my tool bags. I have some camping bags where I'm like, okay, this is my camping kind of emergency bag that's got gloves and cordage and, and flashlights and stuff. There's multiple lighters in there. But I also have like a magnesium stick or something like this where it's like, okay, if I break my lighter, how am I going to be able to start a fire now? But I don't have like some of these little fuels. I, I have them here around the house, but I don't have them in my riding pack. So I'm like, I'm going to order another kind of fuel starting stick or fuel, you know, fire starting fuel and put that in my pack and just try some different ones because I've got them in different bags and different things because we do a lot of outdoor stuff, but I didn't have fire starting fuel in my riding pack because like you said, I've got gas. But there was a time where one of my buddies and I, we tried to start a fire we tried to start a fire off our dirt bikes with the spark plug. We had gas-soaked tissue paper, and we couldn't start a fire with our spark plug. I was, I was right. absolutely just stunned that we couldn't. The only way that we actually got that uh, fuel-soaked uh, tissue paper to light was to arc off our battery. We took like a pair of pliers, took the seat off the bike, and we had elect you know, we've got a little battery there, and I just basically arced what you're not supposed to do, right? I took a piece of metal right. and arced it to the other side of my and then there was a hot enough spark there that that then instantly lit, you know, the tissue on fire and I almost burned my bike down. <laughs> but the point is there's there's ways that we need to start fires and there's things that we need to talk about talk you know, think about. So I ordered I ordered the bivy sack because I'm like, look, these things are I don't know if I'm gonna be able to fit it in my pack. They're lightweight, but as far as the room, but these things are fifteen, twenty dollars. And I'm like, you know what? I can afford this. I need to do a little bit more. And maybe I need to hook this to my pack or figure out a way to hook it to my motorcycle. And then the fire starting stuff. It's like, it's not going to hurt. If I can put one of these little fire cubes in my pack, okay, so I've got two ways to start a fire. What if everything is super wet? You know, a lot of times by the time you decide that you need fire, okay, so you got a lighter. (laughs) How are you going to, everything's wet, you know, so you might need some fuel to be able to burn long enough to dry out some of this stuff that you're able to find. So these are really good things. So starting a fire, having fuel. I really like what you mentioned, you know, get a couple different ones and try them because there might be one that you, that somebody really likes that, you know, that I don't use or, you know, something else that, that I like that other people don't like. So it's important to, 
like I said at the beginning, you know, kind of know your gear, know what you have, and practice with that kind of stuff. Make sure you can start a fire. You know, take what's in your pack and make sure you can spend the night kind of go from there. So yeah. we'll do that a lot too, where, you know, you have, okay, you have what you have, now you got to spend the night. And so, um, makes a, makes a difference to be comfortable and familiar with what you do have. You, you wrote down on here, cause we're just kind of following your outline. You wrote down a light and you said headlamps. So I've got a number of headlamps. I don't carry a headlamp in my, in my riding pack. I'm wondering if I should change that. I've got multiple here in, in this room with me. I have like five headlamps, but I don't have any in my riding pack. I wonder if I ought to change that. Well, yeah. So the reason I put I put headlamps just because they are so light and then they're functional, right? So if you, uh, most of them have like a strobe option, you know, things like that, that you could really signal. So if I'm flying around, I see somebody with a strobe and they're waving it around, then I know, wait, that person probably needs help, right? And so... If you're out in an area where I don't find that I can see 10 different light sources, but there's one that has a strobe and they're moving it around, then I know that's probably the person that needs help, right? And so those lights, again, um, with the night vision goggles, I can see those for for miles. And so the headlamps are really good because they're light, they're small, they don't take up a lot of room, but they're functional. They have different options, you know, different different ways you can... You can light it to see what you're doing. You know, you can have your hands free, be able to start your fire, build your shelter, do whatever you're going to do, and then it's still functional that you can signal for help. So that's why I put headlamps are great. It's so funny that you talk about that strobe thing because I've got four kids and I have this, you know, pack that has all these flashlights in it. And uh, I just, I'm like, hey, this is your flashlight, but come put it back in this pack so that we know where it is. And and uh, it's funny because a lot of the flashlights that you get now have this strobe option, you know, so you've either right. got on or off and then it's got strobe. And I've been so annoyed at times because my kids <laughs> will turn it to strobe and then it's like, you know, blasting me with it around the campfire. And I, right. I've never, it's funny to hear you talk because you're like, hey, that strobe feature is something that I use as a, as a, you know, search and rescue guy, because that gives me the key. This is a person that I need to pay attention to. And so you have a totally different view on it. I'm sitting here annoyed that my kids are turning it on strobe and you're probably thinking, Hey, that might save someone's life right there. Right. That's cool. And then what about first yeah. aid? Like what, what type? Cause I do have kind of a trauma little first aid kit that I bring with some Israeli bandages and things. What do you think is a good kit to have for, for first aid? for a, a dirt biker yeah. or somebody going in the backcountry. So in my first aid kit, and what I think people should do is, first of all, you're looking for lightweight and efficient, right? So mine mine is pretty small. Um, I'm sitting there staring at my iPad mini, and my first aid pack is smaller than that. Um, and then it's light. It weighs less than two pounds. Um, but, you know, like you said, just some Israeli bandages, just some basic first aid. Like, can you wrap up um, somebody's arm with either some gauze or, you know, some kind of wrap? And then I carry a lot of, I carry like athletic tape um, and use that a lot for just, just like a straight bandaid, you know, stopping the bleeding because you could wrap up, you know, uh, somebody's wound and get the bleeding stopped, but it's going to hold better than a bandaid. So I kind of use that. Um, and then in my first aid kit, that's where I put my fire starters, my signal mirror, you know, things like that. 
but just some basic stuff, maybe some ibuprofen, but you're looking and you're looking, okay, if I'm going out on my dirt bike, what would I need this first aid kit for? And it's going to be, it's going to be one for bleeding. And then two, can I start a fire? You know, things like that. And so when I say basic first aid, I don't mean, I don't mean you're carrying around a 20 pound first aid kit. I'm just saying, you know, a small little pouch, a little bag, and you can put, you know, some bandages, some moleskin, um, for any kind of blisters if you get, you know, and things like that can can really improve your comfort level and, you know, stop bleeding. Kind of the, the two main things they look at. Yeah, I love it. If, if Dan is listening to this, Dan, you know who you are. Um, Dan sent me a first aid kit here, and I love it. He's got all the things that you mentioned. He's got Israeli bandage. There's a, you know, a clotting sponge in here. There's athletic tape. There's, you know, a few band-aids. There's some gauze and then even some glue here to glue your skin back together or something like that. And it's in this really quick and easy pack. I'd like to see if I can figure out how to assemble these and maybe even offer them on my website just so it's like, hey, guys, this is bare minimum. This is something that that we have found that works really well. Are there good places for people to go and look for like these kits that they can buy? Is there, you know, is there some reputable source that you like where it's like, Hey, somebody's already kind of put this together for me in a little first aid pack. Do you know of anything like that for the listeners? So there is a, there is a couple, um, you know, like trying to look up real quick. There's, some that we use, some of the stuff that we get that we have access to from being on law enforcement and stuff like that, that, that I don't think everybody has access to. Um, the way I started my pouch though, is I just went to like REI and bought, they have, they have different size first aid kits. And, you know, I just, I just got the one that's like, okay, this is the size that I want. And then it has a lot of stuff in there, you know, little scissors to trim the mole skin and, and things like that. But then I just kind of went through and used the pouch and used some of the stuff that was in there and then replaced some of their stuff with my own stuff. And so as far as like, you know, a really good, really good place that just has a, a perfect kit put together, you know, I don't know, I don't know many of those, but you know, the, the biggest thing is just get a bag, a little pouch. And like I said, REI or any of these outdoors places have you know, a good place to start. And then, you know, I probably have three times as much stuff as what came in that pouch, but the pouch is very versatile, has some folding flaps and different pockets and things like that. So that'll at least get you started and get you in a good, you know, a good starting point. Yeah. So it seems like so much of this stuff is just about having a little bit of extra preparation is going to go a long ways. Um, you know, if you're, if you're going to go for an hour, you should have preparation to stay for a day. And if you're going to go for the day, you should probably have, think about, well, what if this took two days? That's probably, right. uh, that's probably kind of a lot of what this boils down to, right? Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I, you know, that that's what I go off of is always be ready for the day, for the entire day, you know, 12, 15 hours. Um, you know, even in my flight pack, like my little go bag that I take on flights, all that stuff, like I'm ready, you know. If I if I go out on this call and I'm like, oh, that's going to be a quick call, but then I get a second flight, a third flight, and now I have to figure out food and I got to stay the night and you know just simple things like that. So I'm always planning, I'm always planning for the day minimum, 
And then if I go out and I'm like, man, this trip is going to take eight to 10 hours. Then I'm, I'm like, what do I need to stay the night? What do I need to, you know, to go another day? So I'm always ready for at least two days. I love it. Well, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It's, it's fun. I hope that this, um, also brought some color to some people to help them to start thinking about, you know, some of these things. Maybe, maybe they need to get some sort of a shelter. Maybe they need to get a Garmin inReach, you know, maybe they need to put some additional things in their pack and just, and just start to be a little bit more prepared. I feel like I've, with the life straw after the first, you know, uh, email that I had with you, I'm like, look, I've got to get a life straw. So I've, that's ordered. I'm getting one of these life sacks and, and then obviously a little bit more fire starting fuel and whether or not I can carry all of this stuff with me, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I, I want to be constantly evaluating the types of, you know, things I'm bringing with me, um, so that I have a better chance of, of surviving or helping someone else to survive, you know, because some of the time it, 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 this is about community and helping, helping someone else. And I know that a lot of dirt bikers do that where we will, you know, give the shirt off our back for somebody. And it's always better to be riding with someone who is prepared. You know, a lot of the guys that I ride with, um, I trust them. I've seen them in pressure situations. I'm seen, I've seen them when they get hurt um, and you get to know who they are and you also get to see their preparation, how you know, well-maintained their, uh, their bike, what extra parts are they bringing, what extra tools are they bringing, and it's good, it's good to be in a group of people that are all well-prepared you know, mentally, physically, with some of these things, and it just gives you the better you know, odds for survival if something does happen. And I think so often, I think all too often we forget that we're putting ourselves as dirt bikers in these extreme environments, in extreme situations, very remote from the truck. That's part of the allure of it for what I'm doing is for us to get out here in the backcountry and get in some place that it would take you a week to hike. It would take a horse three days to get there, but we're going to do it, you know, in an afternoon. And, and there's some additional, you know, responsibilities that come along with that, where we need to be prepared for, you know, the what ifs. So, right. And, you know, and the biggest thing, like, you know, I put a bunch of stuff on the list. We talked about things that that'll kind of get people started. But I think the biggest thing is like you said, just get people thinking about this and thinking about the situation and knowing what kind of writing they do or what kind of activity they're doing and, and maybe think through some situations. You know, like I said, we play the what if game. And you kind of think through the situation. You know, I watch some of your YouTube videos where your sons are, are wearing their packs. And I love that because, you know, a lot of times when we're, when we're writing with our kids and stuff, you can you can sit there and you can teach, try to teach them things. But if they're like, if you're like, hey, this is important for you to carry this, this, and this, and then you never make them do it, then they're going to be like, well, I don't really need it. You know, this time I went out without it. This time I did but if they're going out with it every time, they're going to learn that stuff. And, you know, I make my son practice with fire, practice with all these things in case we get separated and now he has to spend the night, you know, or something like that. And so, you know, kids learn more from our examples than what we try to tell them. And so if you're given that example of, hey, this, this is what's important for you to have, for you to be safe then they're going to learn that from a young age. And then when they get older and start adventuring out on their own, they're not going to, they're not going to go off, you know, 
half cocked without without anything that they need, they're going to think through it and say, "Hey, what what kind of stuff should I put in my pack?" And you know that's big because a lot of a lot of people that we go out and find are, you know, people that maybe tried something with other people, and the other people were prepared, and they and now they're trying it by themselves and they're not prepared. You know, they're like, oh, well, I did this before. And this guy, you know, like, yeah, well, that guy had everything that you needed and you don't have what you need. And so if you can start that young and you get these kids thinking through those process, you know, that's, that's huge. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time in your, in your downtime when you're not on call, you're, uh, you're taking some time out for us. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Oh, you, you bet. Well, let's, hey, uh, you, oh, uh, go ahead. I was just going to ask you if you had a chance to look at any of those videos or if they worked to send I, them to you that I, way. I did see a couple of videos. They were pretty cool. There was a couple of videos and a couple of pictures that were pretty intense. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was good stuff. It makes me feel like, right. man, I'm in the wrong profession. I, I love my, I love my job, but aviation was, was the thing that I always wanted to do. You know, I grew up watching Top Gun. I wanted to be a fighter pilot and then it kind of transitioned. No, I'm just going to do general aviation and, uh, yeah, but I've got, I've got a buddy here that lives in my neighborhood that flies, you know, for the national guard, he flies Blackhawks. I think he's transitioning over to some, some other aircraft now, but I'm like, man, I, I always see the guys up in the sky and I'm like, that's where, that's kind of where my heart is. You know, that's what I want to, right. I always wanted to do. And now as I've gotten older, I'm like, I think I might be a little bit bored with commercial aviation, but something in your line where you're out, you know, flying helicopters and rescuing people, I think those missions would be way more fun than just shuttling somebody from Salt Lake to Chicago, you know? Yeah, it, it, it's pretty fun. And like I said, you know, it's, you never know what to expect. Everything's different. You're thinking outside the box all the time. You're doing something different and not just, oh, I'm flying to Minnesota every day, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's pretty awesome. But we'll have to get you up for a ride along or something. Sometime. Oh man, I would love that. I would love that. I can, I can ruck packs or, or help, you know, hold someone in the helicopter, tie them down. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Okay. All right. Thanks, Luke, so much. And uh, we'll chat with you soon. All right. You bet. All right. Bye. So hopefully you guys learned something there. That's uh, Luke Bowman. He is one of the, one of the pilots here for uh, search and rescue in Utah. Pretty cool for him to take out some time for us. Hopefully you guys learned some things and hopefully you got some takeaways from that. Um, I know I did. I've ordered, you know, couple two or three things in the last well i ordered two things during that podcast i'm like over on amazon going hey i could use that i could use this so if you want to support dirt bike channel you can do so by using the links to rocky mountain atv that's one of the best ways to support us without having to do you know spend any of your hard-earned money if you go to dirtbikechannel.com up in the upper right hand corner there's a links button you click that and it shows you a bunch of links with rocky mountain atv motorsport amazon and uh, it's really easy to do. If you want just like a link that you can bookmark, send me an email uh, and I can send you back a link that you can just throw in one of your bookmarks um, because anytime you click those links on my website, the tracking IDs go away so fast that you can't bookmark them later. Maybe if, you, if you're a tech savvy guy and you can actually find the link before it disappears, then you could hit that. But that's a great way to support me. Other ways, like if you're listening to this before June 15th of 2020, I've got a Dirt Bike Channel sweepstakes going on where we're giving away three dirt bikes. Yes, a 2020 Beta 300RR, a 2020 Yamaha YZ250FX, and a 2019 KTM um, 
300 XCW. In fact, after this, after I get done with this, I'm going down to Moto Experts and we're going to film putting the bike back together because Kevin is putting in a new top end for us, you know, new piston and rings. The cylinder looked amazing after 125 hours. So if you guys are, are listening to this, you're getting the sneak peek. The bike looked awesome. The motor looked awesome inside that bike. It's a TPI bike. I, I tried to beat it up. I tried to kill it as hard as I could, with, harder than any other bike, and we didn't kill it. Um, so we're putting that back together today, and I'll be putting that video out because that's one of the other sweepstakes bikes here in just less than two weeks. We're going to be giving that, giving that bike away as well. So three different dirt bikes. Head over to dirtbikechannel.com right now, and you can get entered to win that. Uh, again, big thanks again to Luke Bowman for coming on the podcast with us. And I think that's what I've got because i got to get this podcast out and then get on, jump on another call and then head over and do the uh, filming for this uh, that KTM 300 TPI. So that's all I got for you guys. Um, you know what to do. Let's leave this single track. Thanks. <laughs>